You're listening to 17 Karat K-Pop. For more about this show, as well as my other podcast, How to Stand, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. There you'll find episode guides, as well as additional reading, more exclusive content, tons of great stuff. And never miss an update, an album review, interview, etc. by subscribing to the free newsletter, howtostand.substack.com. You could also become a paying subscriber on Substack, and that means you're supporting an independent creator and become part of a community, howtostand.substack.com. Enjoy the show! Hi everybody! Welcome back to 17 Karat K-Pop. I am super excited today to talk about N-Hyphen's new album, Manifesto Day One. For more background on their whole music video cinematic universe, check out the episodes of the show called N-101 and N-Hyphen's Dual Worlds. Frankly, N-101, super technical, glitch-filled, not one of my best episodes. The more cohesive and technologically sound episode is the one called N-Hyphen's Dual Worlds. But today we're going to focus mostly this release in itself, because there is a lot to unpack that does connect back to previous releases, but is also brand new. I'm going to stop jibber-jabbering. Let's just dive into the details. A series of comeback teaser videos that came out have a lot of details that I think are worth remembering for later. The biggest ones include the words in white letters that popped up when the screen went to black to just really emphasize a couple key words. Paradox and ME in all caps. Those are probably related words here about how they themselves feel like an enigma, a confusing ball of feelings and traits. I would also note the bicycle because that was in several different teasers, so that may be a recurring presence for a reason. The overall premise is noteworthy of one teaser video where all of these shadowy figures, looking like literal shadowy figures, dressed in black, looking more like outlines of real people than physical, present people. More like the idea of people. And they're carrying identical briefcases, wear identical outfits. They seem very representative of the status quo business people going about daily life, questioning nothing, going through the motions. It also appears symbolic that at one point some of these shadow figures try to get through and filter their way into a one-person-only, narrow, narrow, single-file hallway. They're trying to funnel their way into one main route to success, you could say. Then there are the teasers with the members going on Instagram Live, streaming this for the world to see, wanting to make a fuss, wanting to go viral. The clock on the wall in the recording studio says 9. Now honestly, we're not going to revisit that later in this episode, because I think it is just kind of random, but I always note numbers. When numbers show up in these K-pop videos, especially when you have a time travel concept, to me it's worth noting, because you never know when it will become relevant again, if it comes back. They also release red plumes of smoke, they add the word real to the wall of graffiti, and notably, in the teaser where each member, kind of theme song style, has like their own box, their own little window on a TV screen of sorts, they each get a different keyword or phrase below their screen. Reset us, me, manifesto, district, walk the line, rule breaker, junction, don't judge me, the one where all the members come together for a group shot says, show you who I am. So no matter what their individual scenarios, at the end of the day, that is a shared mission to show the world who they really are. The Walk the Line monologue is really worth sitting with, so I'm just going to read it to you, then we're going to dissect it. 
Here we go. Quote, a line, a borderline that transverses the world and beyond like dividing a white sheet of paper. To me, this line was a nightmare. I kept running and running towards an unknown destination, beyond the border to cross the line, but it eventually caught up with me, bound me, knocked me down, and forced me to walk along it like running in a wheel. But just like David's stone that soared through the sky with centrifugal force, just like an accelerating rocket that breaks away from centripetal force and zooms out of orbit, I have now become aware, after running and running and running some more, and I declare that I, who was hunted so far, have now become the hunter. I, who walked along the line, am now drawing the line. I will now draw a new world line, and within that world, we will connect all of us. Draw the line. Today is the first day. Begin my new day. Don't walk the line. Today is the first day. Begin my new day. Erase the lines that cage me. Throw away the rules. Draw a new line. My own path. We draw the new line. Light, cold air, clear blue skies. I lift my eyes up to see the sun rising. Okay, a couple of details there we have to dissect. First of all, centrifugal force is not real. Centrifugal force is kind of a, an expression. It's referring to something, it's not like a physical force, a frame of reference, a way to describe something's movement in relation to something else. Instead of describing a thing, it's describing what a thing would be relative to other things. Hopefully it makes more sense if you understand centripetal force, which is physical, like gravity or friction an actually quantifiable, scientifically understood phenomena that is required to move circularly. So centripetal force required for circular motion. Centrifugal force is what causes something to just move away from the center of something else. A force of its own versus a term for what pushes something away from the center of something else. In their monologue, they talk about a stone soaring with centrifugal force, which is the unreal one. And they apply the term centripetal force to a rocket, which is interesting because you'd expect it to be the reverse. A stone in your hand is compared to the unreal force, and the rocket ship that could help you explore new worlds is linked to the grounded physical force-related term. This rocket is described as just going in circles, so your dreams are beyond even that. A totally new defining of cool adventures, basically. As for the reference to David Stone, we're going to talk so much about that later in the episode, trust me. But this reference to the story of David and Goliath is notable because they're considered to have been five Stones of David. Basically physical symbols of the five traits and things he needed to defeat Goliath. Faith, obedience, service, prayer, and the fifth, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Again, more on that meaning later, but they are continuing their topic of questioning norms, expressing their individuality, redefining success, making their own rules, and realizing the self-imposed limitations on their dreams and behaviors. They thought before they already were rejecting the status quo, creating new paradigms. They haven't done anything yet, comparatively, because now they express resentment towards this line they have been sticking by, like they haven't been crossing it overtly enough. They haven't challenged themselves far enough away from the existing go-to norms and assumptions. 
They are challenging themselves to think bigger and more creatively, just like David had to, to defeat a skilled combatant nine-foot-tall monster that was Goliath. There are two interesting paradoxes, the paradox word use intended, to this release. One is that it is sonically a diversion for them, and thematically, lyrically, about the same stuff it's always been. That mix of old and new, I think, is key to their appeal, and shows how expansive their worldview will continue to be, even though it remains centered around the same core themes. Second paradox, the lines are gone in their song titles. No more hyphenated title tracks. But they're still talking about this line and crossing it. That's the paradox. They keep talking about what are we going to do to combat, to question, to step over, to break, to redo this line. And by saying that, they're ironically reinforcing the line's existence in presence in their life. They continue to do something they've done a lot in the past, which is mixed tenses, past, present, and future tense in their sentences. Their lyrics continue to do that, so calling the new title track Future Perfect, aka Pass the Mic, is so perfect. And they say in the song, walk the line, I hate that line, I realized, past tense. They also reference drawing your future. Two favorite lyrics from this. One is, quote, I want to stand on my own feet, everything else is meaningless. Bring up my real voice and draw our future, unquote. And two, quote, you help stoke my myth. What did you say? To that, my answer is always real, unquote. That's really interesting that the person they're talking to stoked the myth. They enhanced this preconception about you. And then they're like, what did you accuse me of? And there's another paradox where they have to say it's real talk. That's what you did. You added to a myth. The song's power also comes from the delivery. The way they say you stay with such desperation, very palpable. Paradox Invasion continues the paradox concept because they keep repeating no paradox and like paradox. They keep referencing both logic and illogic, like they're coming up with their own new frame of reference that redefines both. It also sounds like a let me in partner song, which I like. The next song is TFW, That Feeling When really vulnerable. So it's interesting how the first two songs were like the members really talking tough, and now they've really softened. By this point in the album, they seem more vulnerable, sensitive, and desperate when they sing Please Just Stay With Me. The assertive facade is waning. It's notable that they reference the sea again. Lots of ocean references before. We'll get back to that. And I love this one because it gives me Pretty You by Seventeen vibes. Love to hear it. My favorite track, the alt-rock track written by Jake, shout out, which he said he wrote, keeping NG in mind, hoping to sing this with fans someday. It would sound so cool live. Great lyrics like, quote, I'm getting sick of all kinds of people's words. Who on earth defines myself? The fake paradigm that locked me up. Beyond the borderline, drawn by someone. Unquote. They actually change the chorus at the end. They add a line to the chorus. They add, quote, my life without you is a misery, unquote. There's the theme of a paradox again, where this whole album is about stepping into your own and being proud of who you are as an individual, but they also reiterate on several songs here their need for companionship to get to that place of individual confidence. Lastly, there is Foreshadow. 
The translations are kind of rough. It's part Korean, part English. So I'm going to kind of skip around. But here is what the closing monologue says. Quote, The days I'm being chased, the days I kneel down, and the first day I finally declare. Those days fell into place, one by one, like pieces of a puzzle. Until one day, a long shadow fell before my eyes, facing the rain. Remember, there's the water reference again. But, if it's a struggle to keep your promise, I still believe, I still firmly believe, we can still meet. We will connect, no matter what. In front of me, foreshadow. I run after the shadows, towards a new world. Because the one true ending, that splendid future, waits for us. Unquote. Another paradox, talking about running after the shadow, and the shadow running after you. And yes, it's a play on word, shadow, and foreshadow, double meaning there. The time travel premise is really obvious this time. Let's look back at some very notable details we've seen in their past videos that I've broken down. Fire. Images of a class on fire, a hand on fire, roses on fire. Slow motion running. Glowing eyes. The triggering of flashbacks, like traveling through time. Appearing to pop in and out, or be invisible, just ghost-like behavior. The members ending videos together. At the end, they all come together and walk somewhere in the same direction. Sunlight bursting in the room, cracking the glass, or otherwise blinding them. Smoke following them. References to water, even with the mythology references to the whirlpool Charybdis, Odysseus's story, the songs of sailors and sirens, that happens immediately before two characters they reference overtly in their work enter the story, the symbolism of becoming a monster the second you enter the potion-filled sea, the moon, referenced with the double meaning of the wane, like a waning moon, but it could also refer to power or success, the concept of everyone questioning what's real, putting on fake personas, putting on airs, the sunlight's power, there's a Shakespeare sonnet 148 that they reference that's all about that. The blinding sun used as a metaphor for not seeing clearly, not seeing something for what it truly is. Then there's Shakespeare's Hamlet, which references being mad as the sea, like that whirlpool. Tiebacks to the sun in references to the sea in intro whiteout when they said, quote, my eyes are closed. No, they are open, but I can't see, unquote. And they reference, quote, the midday sea, unquote. Plus an interlude question, quote, endlessly written, like the waves that ride the rhythm atop the sunset sea. For now, I will float away, unquote. Now, the past the mic music video really takes on different meaning. The full moon is back, the glowing eyes, a wave of a hand triggering flames, time travel, a brief moment during the time travel where they seem to go back to morning hours or maybe travel ahead to the next morning. But either way, it goes from nighttime to just a day in school with the bright blinding sun coming through the windows. There is some slow-mo running and breaking through a glass wall, glass shattering everywhere. There's the pivotal scene where they have a bunch of hooded figures outside the windows that they stare at. They're back in a school setting, which was on fire before. 
Recurring symbols include the supernatural elements hinted at, time travel abilities, the full moon, glowing eyes, all that stuff. Plus flames, smoke, which is now red in the teaser videos and was black in a past video. These hooded characters, these dark presences around them, and sunlight as this metaphor that is kind of distorting their experiences. Plus the sea metaphors. I could go on and on, but I'm trying to be kind of summative here. There are a lot of recurring themes in this new video. And I think it might be a new trend that in their title track videos, we will see that two-part split, like they are this time, really jumping far from both sides of the line. Having like the first half of the video be one theme and the second half be totally different. But there's the paradox, because by showing the differences, you also imply the existence of the dividing line in the first place. Overall, this new album, really profound, and way more than what meets the eye or the ear. Now I'm very excited to talk more about the David and Goliath reference, because honestly, it's so fascinating to me. So here's your crash course guide to David and Goliath, as well as a really great book. I don't believe in all of his views and analyses. I disagree with some parts, but I really do agree with the central tenets of the book, and I think they help explain and hyphen story really well. So while we talk about the biblical Old Testament David and Goliath story, we're also going to talk about the book called David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell from 2013. It's a non-fiction book from that journalist and author that I think is really, really illuminating. You'll see what it relates to with Enhyphen's bigger worldview. It really can be summed up with this David and Goliath premise, which is more complex than you think. So let's back up. The original story goes something like this. In the 11th century BCE, there were two armies on opposite sides of a valley. A valley that was just not smart to do battle in. So they were at this impasse in their separate corners. On one side you had Goliath, this nine-foot-tall behemoth, with smart hand-to-hand -hand combat skills in a spear, very intimidating. Part of the other side was David, a young, unimpressive-looking fellow, a weakling, basically, whose weapon of choice was a smooth stone. He was predicted to be the loser, but we know how this ends. Goliath proposed a way to break the stalemate by saying, look, I don't want full-out war in this valley, so you just bring me one person at a time. And if a day comes where the sacrifice, basically, you offer up for me to fight beats me, I will surrender. So they offered up David. Poor David. But he had to do extra prep to win. He had to plan how to outsmart this guy because he knew the odds were not in his favor. So the story's basically the tortoise and the hare on steroids because Goliath got way too cocky and did not prepare for what he would do if the status quo suddenly was rejected, if things didn't follow the assumed pattern. David threw his stone from a distance, knocked Goliath on the head, he fell over and died. There actually is some debate among scholars about maybe technically this other guy in the second book of Samuel killed Goliath, but that's an irrelevant aside just for the sake of today's discussion. David won, and this David and Goliath metaphor is used all the time, at least in the USA, for everything from sports games to politics. It's a way of really, really simplifying a narrative about someone who's really, the odds seem way stacked in their favor, and the little guy, the underdog, is going to try harder, have to try harder, to go up against them. 
Gladwell's book, and I think in Hyphen's premise really, dives into that story's meaning and really brings up a lot of thought-provoking questions about what it means to be the David or a Goliath in a situation. What makes society automatically label some people as Davids and others Goliaths? What do we assume one party has that the other doesn't? Bigger doesn't mean better. People automatically translated Goliath's size to success, but that was not the factor. I would argue the big factor was weapon choice. You can be big or small, but if your weapon doesn't work as well, and a stone is actually not as lame of a weapon as you think, because with a spear or something, you have to be in close range to get at your enemy, but you can throw a stone from a safe distance away. Plus, he could literally have been out of sight, actually. Because one theory is that the reason Goliath was so big is not good. It's because he had a tumor, and the tumor might have been pressing on his optic nerve, meaning he did not have good eyesight to see his enemy in the first place. Plus, David had to plan. Goliath could just skate by like the hare in the tortoise and the hare. Just wing it. But David knew he had nothing to lose, reputation-wise, since he was already the loser in the eyes of the public. So he felt more emboldened to scheme and try anything. The stakes were against him, so what do you have to lose? And his cleverness was enough, as well as how thin-skinned Goliath was. Because honestly, what initially set him off and caused Goliath to charge towards David, which prompted the stone throw, was some comment David made about, well, God's on my side. That was enough to set him off. So a short temper, being your downfall, could also be a lesson of the story. So the story of David and Goliath is a story about both not underestimating the underdog's chances and reassessing what you labeled an advantage or a disadvantage in the first place. Malcolm Gladwell's book applies this story to real-world dynamics with a ton of fascinating examples that boil down to that argument that a lot of this is a matter of perspective. Goliath wasn't necessarily better equipped to win. He was just deemed by social norms to have the better skills to win. Whether that's true or not, we are creatures of habit who follow consistent thought patterns that are hard to shake, and so we always assume the Goliath will win. Gladwell's book tries to challenge that notion, and tries to go further and say, it's not just that David and anyone who's a David in their life should not be underestimated, but they actually might be more likely to succeed because they have that attitude. He applies it to the civil rights movement, you know? If you've got nothing to lose, you can put it all on the line. If you don't care about a certain authority figure, you get in good trouble, as John Lewis would say, rest in peace. If you have to work harder, as you work harder, you learn skills that the Goliaths never have to. So you're more prepared for worse events. The book is so freaking fascinating. I really nerd out over social and economic theory books. I like a lot of really deep nonfiction, okay? Here's your more layman's terms version, though. But I will link to where you can check out the full book on my site. Malcolm's book has three big parts. The first part is about the advantages of disadvantages and vice versa. One example he uses is this underdog basketball team having to strategize in out-of-the-box ways because the traditional playbook was clearly not working. Risk-taking willingness paid off and they could break a losing streak. The second part is about the theory of desirable difficulty. And he says, basically, with dyslexia, as an example, you are required by necessity to learn compensation learning, where others might skate by life with capitalization learning, which is not as in-depth. 
So if you master compensation learning and not capitalization learning, you may be better off and more well-rounded skill-wise in the future. That's why he talks about how going to a certain elite college might not be all it's cracked up to be, how certain movie producers and lawyers have benefited from dyslexia. It has forced them to find ways to disarm their opponent by just surprising them, by not going through the standard lines of attack, standard readings of cases. But he argues again, not despite but because of a disadvantage, you actually thrive more. The third part focuses on the limits of power. And he looks at this study economists did, finding that the ultimate way to get people to shut up and obey authority is to make the costs of protesting higher than the benefits. Seems straightforward, right? Too straightforward. So Malcolm adds some caveats. And he says, well, that might be true, but you didn't address the implied authority. And if there's no shared underlying sense of legitimacy you give that authority figure, this argument is incomplete. You have to address at the base level if they trust and treat you like you're in a position of authority. And if they don't, you'll be unsuccessful at defining the whole cost-benefit analysis to them because they just ignore you. This, again, was applied in the book to civil rights demonstrations and how, in life, you can win by delegitimizing your opponent, by getting them to act a certain way. Civil rights protesters knew big public demonstrations would bring out the media, and when police ended up responding with water cannons, police dogs, it led to iconic, horrendous images that changed the public consciousness and really increased support for ending legal segregation. By understanding the power of mass media and photographers on scene, protesters were able to use use the authority figures, basically, as props for their end goal, rather than be used by them. He also talks about the Troubles, the situation where British soldiers were sent to restore order. There were Catholics and Protestants in Belfast who were feuding. The cops were just there to restore order, but somehow they were just assumed to be not restoring it equally, I guess, not clamping down equally, and were assumed by the Catholics to be pro-Protestant in this fight. Because of that, the Catholics saw the police there as illegitimate and not worth taking orders from. A few more examples of Gladwell's main premises, although there are so many other fascinating ones I could bring up. The Rand Corporation in 1964 ran a study to assess how well the U.S. was doing in Vietnam. The assessment came up with, looks like we can win this war, let's just keep bombing. That was their assessment, that the stamina of the other side would run out. Simple as that keep it up. Victory is imminent. Two years later, they hired an independent party to give a second opinion, and his analysis said, no, 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 that's way too simplistic, that's not going to happen. The initial assessment was flawed, you need to change course. Guess which person they chose to go with? Their own non-independent assessment. That demonstrates his point that too much strength is actually a weakness in some ways because you get stubborn and think you know best and don't want to change course and don't want to be proven wrong. And it goes to his point about how underdogs have the advantage of being a fresh set of eyes because they're outside of the system. And without emotional attachment, they can see the flaws in a system and point them out to you. They have more ability to reframe situations and just see them as they are, biases aside, see what is really going on. 
It's hard to be an underdog, though. Really, it takes a lot of physical but mental, too, work. And it's easier to just go to our go-to patterns of thinking. We're creatures of habit. That's why we stereotype a bunch of stuff and our fear of being wrong. And a huge interesting example is from the fall of 1940 with the London Blitz, carried out by Nazi Germany. People in London grew so accustomed, so desensitized to the constant bombing that they just went about daily life like it wasn't happening. The big takeaway sociologically, psychologically, is that those who didn't die actually came out of the experience feeling better, like they had a sense of invincibility and solidarity and community. The point is not they should have gone through that. But it's that even in the bleakest of times, the most harrowing of experiences, you can become stronger for it. The Davids have to endure and therefore get stronger than the Goliaths of the world. Ultimately, the Davids are willing to take the road less traveled. They're willing to put in that work both because of necessity and willingness to put in that work. Another main point he brings up is just how oversimplified the story can get. Because think about it, David and Goliath are not clear-cut. Who's winning in battle changes by the second. The dynamic is constantly in flux. Which is another way he encourages people to change their thinking out of that paradox, out of that way of trying to simplify and understand a complex issue. Gladwell gives some interesting examples of too much of a good thing, like too much strength, too much whatever it is, too much ego, with class sizes. A very interesting connection. He also talks about the inverted U-curve. I nerd out over that fascinating stuff, but I understand my listeners may not, so I'll skip it. But the point is that things that seem inversely related stop at some point being inversely related. The common assumption that people still act on, again, because we're creatures of habit and refuse to be proven wrong, but despite a lack of data, people still act on this. People still assume the smaller the class size, the better. The more easy it is to learn, the better they'll do with the one-on-one -on -one attention. That's only the case up until a point. Then your class is better off with a few more students than fewer. You need more viewpoints. You need more experiences. So class size is an example of your thinking needs to not be so black and white because there's a happy medium. Another example he uses, money. Kids who grew up with money, probably better off, set on a better track of life than people without. But again, not that simple. There's a cap. Uber-wealthy kids, well, that brings its own set of issues in your childhood of preparing you for the world. So, another example of how the picture of who's David and who's Goliath and how you become that, not so clear-cut. One way he also gets at this too much of something is counterintuitive argument is with excessive uses of force, as well as the three strikes law. California used to have a very strict three strikes law. So if it was your third crime, no matter how trivial it was, you got a certain penalty, no lower, which was 25 years. So if your crime was something super petty, but it was your third crime, three strikes you're out in the slammer 25 years. At first it had overwhelming support, and people thought it was working because across this decade, the murder rate steeply dropped in California. Gladwell, though, reminds us things are not so simple, because the murder rate dropped everywhere in the country, not just where the three strikes law was in place. So just because there's a correlation does not mean there's a causation. This law led to less murder. He also found that, if anything, it was counterintuitive. It was costing taxpayers more to have these people locked up when, at that age, they were already aging out of crime, less likely to reoffend. 
So he pointed out how the three strikes law looked like it was doing something, but was actually doing something else. The public opinion really did sway against it, allowing it to be massively weakened in 2012. The final straw seemed to be when a guy stole a pizza pizza and was sentenced to 25 years. Going along with that thought of too much force does more harm than good, there is such a thing as a maximum amount this can be beneficial, is that premise again of authority or lack thereof. And the book describes how this village in France refused to follow orders to help Nazis arrest and deport Jews. That became a safe space for Jews. Apparently, the story goes, they were so defiant that they handed over a note saying, quote, we have Jews, you're not getting them, unquote. And they were fine. The Nazis didn't think it was worth the effort to invade that area because they knew those village people had the upper hand there. They knew the terrain. They knew what resources were there if the battle got super prolonged. So they thought, why bother, and moved on. The pastor who led this group refused to acknowledge as legitimate the Nazis in their orders, so they were viewed as meritless to him. He was willing to not only risk his reputation authority-wise, but among his clergy and townspeople, he put his rep on the line for what he believed in. In that risk-taking, that disagreeableness, willingness to not be approved by everyone, as Gladwell describes it, led to his success. It's because of his stick-it-to-him nature, his David traits, I guess, that led to him defeating the Goliaths. My big, big, broad, broad takeaway comes from an anecdote in the book about the French Impressionists. They were not breaking through, no one was connecting with their art, no one was seeing it. So they created their own little pond to be a big fish in, rather than stay a little fish in a big pond. They became a big fish by creating a new little pond. They staged their own exhibition. Instead of continuously trying to fit in the existing spaces, they made their own space where they did grow, thrive, and become popular and influential. That's what an hyphen story is. By forging their own path, by breaking free of the constraints of society, by challenging original trains of thought, by thinking outside the box, sometimes literally in their videos represented by a box, you can create new advantages. You can create a whole new set of ideals, of definitions, of advantages, new paradigms. You can instigate a whole paradigm shift by disregarding the lines Goliaths of the world have tried to draw around you. You can find ways, your own ways, to show the world your value, what you have to offer, and what you have to offer uncompromisingly. And that's what N-Hyphen always sing about. No matter what we're doing, where we are time traveling to, what questions we have about ourselves that remain unanswered, at the end of the day, we're going to do this as ourselves. Take us or leave us, or we won't do it at all. That willingness to put it all on the line because it's worth it, and what have we underdogs got to lose? That's what their story's about. The daringness to be disagreeable, the daringness to stare at Goliath in the face and say, like they do in their monologue, they have the Stone of David and they know how to use it. So watch out, world. I hope it gave you a lot to think about and sit with. Really interesting new chapter in N-Hyphen's world. Manifesto Day 1 is out now, and stay tuned because any story developments we will definitely cover on the show. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I will talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everybody.